0: House of the Dragon 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. If you've been following this podcast for the last couple years, you know that stand-up comic Steve Osborne has been an integral voice, and I owe a lot. Of the success of this podcast to him, Steve and I are now following House of the Dragon episode by episode on a new podcast called Double Dragon, and the first 15 minutes of this podcast, you will hear an excerpt of Double Dragon. Now, if you're just into the book stuff, go ahead and jump ahead about 15 minutes, and you will hear a roundtable covering the final chapter of A Game of Thrones. Okay, here's my conversation with Steve as we do a in-depth character study on Daemon Targaryen. Based only on the first episode of House of the Dragon, here is San Francisco Punchlines own Steve Osborne. I want to talk Daemon Targaryen. I kind of feel like, like almost instantly, I'm watching a really important character in the history of television, and mm. it's a lot to put on like one episode. But I do feel like when he was introduced, I couldn't take my eyes off him. Sure. I feel like I'm witnessing the birth of something important. Um yeah. so I want to talk a lot about Tar- Daemon Targaryen and I want to do it by introducing by talking about four different scenes. And I think that these four scenes introduce something some different nuance of his character. So the first I'm calling naked ambition. We wa- you know we walk into the throne room and he's sitting on the iron throne. And I was just thinking, like, how many times have we been in that throne room? Mm. How many times over the course of, you know, the last 10, 15 years do we see a scene in that throne room? And for some reason, when they walk in, the way that they light that room and the way that they shoot that scene, it's just masterful. I feel like they're making that set seem interesting in a way that I hadn't seen it before the guy that's with Renera is basically like shocked and appalled that he would even be on the throne. And right. so anyway, this is why I'm calling this naked ambition. Cause he basically, you know, he, he's talking about how, you know, he's the heir and you know, he's, you know, he's going to be sitting there one day or whatever. Um, I want to ask and the throne,
1: the, the throne still maintains that it's like, it, it, it behaves as a character. Right. I mean, I think right. that, that, uh, uh, we talked about that in, in the rewatch, um, it's it's remarkable how uh without do without moving or anything it feels anthropomorphized right just by virtue of existence
0: absolutely and it will it'll cut a fool you know and it's like oh yeah uh yeah it it works as a metaphor it works it works on a number of levels i wanted to ask you about this scene because i think it's a really important introduction and it's using subtitles Mm
2: -hmm. so
0: i wanted to kind of get your take on this like I think sometimes subtitles will enhance a scene and sometimes it's, it's sort of like you, you could have done this all in a common tongue. So mm-hmm. did, so did using high Valyrian enhance the scene for you?
1: I think so. And I think it does for a couple of reasons. I think it shows, uh, well, I think it's important to introduce high Valyrian in, uh, in this world. It would make sense that it would exist. Um, the it it brought to me a certain layer of seductiveness um between uh uncle and niece mm-hmm. which i think which i think is important i think because there's something about the way that they were speaking to each other there it it suggested they have a relationship where this has happened right this is something this yeah. is this is it's a shorthand for they,
0: intimacy right
1: this is how they communicate with yeah. each other and they've been doing it like without having to, to give any backstory or anything. I've already like, well, these people know each other intimately and, and there's an exclusivity to it as well. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, so that it's, it's, it, it, and that's how I think, you know, great intimacy works, right? Like you're not allowed in kind of a thing. Right. So, the, so there's, it, it was, it felt chilling. It felt seductive. It felt, um, it made it more sinister in a way that without having to do much yeah, of anything. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, so I think it, I think it really was a great way to introduce him. And I think it's a great way to sort of set a tone of that relationship.
0: Right. right. I thought I, I and that's the other thing I wanted to say about the scene is that those two characters are kind of mirror images of each other in a way. Cause what we just found out about her is that she does not care about the sacred at all. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a previous scene where she's ripping the page out of a book And she's like, "Oh no! What about the septa? You know, the septa. You know that that's the 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 whole. You know, she just doesn't care about the sacred. She's sacrilegious. And then when she walks in, seeing the ultimate sacrilege, you know, here's someone who's not the king sitting on the Iron Throne." She kind of, she, she's a little bit amused by it. She's a little bit like, yeah, that's my well, favorite uncle. Well, and he's uncle. not hiding. Yeah.
1: And he's not hiding how he feels about it that's either. Right. So there's a trust level there that says, I can be a little naughty. Exactly. So they're, they're kind of, they have a
0: sacrilegious, okay like his sacrilege is mirroring her sacrilege. I, I thought that that really worked well.
1: And the idea, too, that like going forward, that are they going to be rivals?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or because they're Targaryens. Are they going to be functional? else? Yeah,
0: are they going to be lovers, right? You, right? I think that that's all in that scene. It's like there's all there's all kinds of possibility for these two, right? So, okay, that was the first scene you know, that I'm sort of titling Naked Ambition. All right, so then there's the sort of the openly defiant. Uh, this is sort of him at the tournament. Mm-hmm. And I think that the tournament could have easily been pretty boring, you know, they were talking about like the after the scenes. They were talking about like, we wanted to bring action into the first scene. You know, that, that's great. You know, we want to see action. But it's sort of boring unless there's political intrigue attached. And everything that Damon right. does, every choice he makes, is a total act of defiance to Otto T- Hightower, right? He right. chooses his son. He's I'm going to unhorse your son in, in front of all these people. I'm going to embarrass you. And then what does he do after that? He asks for the favor of Hightower's daughter, right? So every every single choice he's making is like a little jab to Hightower. Um, and so I liked, I liked that that scene told me something about him. And something about their relationship more than just sort of being like eye candy.
1: And it's out in the open, too. We get the sense that, So we had that that throne room scene where he sort of plays his hand to some degree with, the, you know, with the niece. And you're like, OK, that makes sense. And then it's like, oh, but when he's out in the open, like diplomacy is not his thing.
0: <laughs> and right.
1: and he call he calls his shots right out the gate. And not just like in the room with, you know, not not like it's just with the council. Like, no, it's this is for everyone to see. I mean, this is he's doesn't matter whether he's he's, she's she's showing Hightower up almost above all. Yeah.
0: It doesn't matter whether he's in the brothel or in the tournament or, you know, in in the throne room or whatever. This is the guy who's going to speak his mind without any kind of, you know, concern for the consequences. So, you know, that that told me something. The other thing I was going to mention about that scene was that so I'm uh I'm friendly with someone who's sort of an expert on medieval warfare and an expert on these ancient tournaments. And so I asked him like, "Hey, so if you sort of try to trip the other guy's horse instead of trying to unseat the guy, mm-hmm. would that be considered illegal?" And the answer that I got was it's it depends on the context but it's absolutely dirty you know it's totally it it would be a total dirty move um and it would sort of be synonymous with italians That was pretty good wow it's like it's a dirty move and you kind of expect it of italians so i thought that was nice (laughs) speaking as an italian i'm thinking yeah that sounds about right um,
1: yeah and speaking of somebody who's you know disgusted by Italians I also agree
0: <laughs> um, and then of course in some contexts it would absolutely be illegal so I just thought that that tells us something about him too like he's he's willing to play dirty to win um so again these scenes are not just for eye candy they're absolutely telling a political story which i I appreciated yeah okay that's great next thing I want to talk about and this is this is a fascinating scene for me okay i'm I'm calling this uh the insecurity scene all right, so he's in the brothel and i'm I'm really bored of h b o s nudity like I'm just kind of over it i'm I'm like this isn't mm-hmm. scandalizing anyone. this is all kind of boring right but in the sec- the second time I watched this scene, I realized
1: you were just thinking about who was who was doing the sound effects. <laughs> Like what were they
0: using?
1: I just got two pieces of prosciutto they slapped in together. These are things I think about I guess.
0: Again grotesque Italians doing grotesque Italian things. Yeah I just I just walked by, walked by the deli and I, I was like, hey um, I thought it was interesting. I didn't I don't think I caught it the first time this guy who's like established as sort of the badass of the series, he's kind of vulnerable to e d
1: mm. he's
0: got a little elect, uh, uh, erectile dysfunction happening is that is that how you read that scene
1: i uh, yeah, I think so I mean the second time around that's what it seemed like that might have been the
0: case. I just thought that was a fast like in in a show that's sort of like you just expect the nudity so it's kind of boring. I thought, oh, this is interesting. This brings a level of complexity to a character that I was not expecting. And it brings a level of vulnerability to this person. And then after that, he kind of like retreats to this little bench or whatever. And he wraps himself in a, in a sheet. And he allows himself to be consoled by his paramour, Masaria. And so then the question is is this guy insecure? Cuz I think that that's what that scene is trying to tell me. He's kind of insecure.
1: Yeah. No, I think so. And I think that uh that's uh, I mean that's it, it, it this is the the Daemon Targaryen show, right? I mean, at least that's what it's it's At least this first episode,
0: like. I I'm I mean, I look, Rhaena is really interesting and I, I'd love to see the sea snake. You know, do do swashbuckle and stuff. But this first episode is absolutely Damon Targaryen show, right?
1: Yeah, I mean or yeah, and I think to, nothing nothing works without like a, I mean the thing with Game of Thrones is that, you know, who's bad, who's good. That's always seems to be a little blurred. Um and so in this case it's like I think they've added some some complexity to Damon, but you, you it feels like it'll be a hard It'll be hard to root for. He's the J.R.
0: Ewing, maybe, this whole thing. Sure. All right. Here's what I want to say about this. The fact that he is insecure, I think, makes him more dangerous than anything else. Right? It's like, this guy has political ambition. This guy has a weapon of mass destruction that he he rides around as a pet. Right? But what what, he's got a fancy sword. But what makes him dangerous is that he's got all that and he's insecure. I think that we saw that over and over and over again with with certain characters in Game of Thrones. And I thought, oh, they could have gone a different direction with this. But by making him insecure, that kind of makes him it brings an instability to his character
1: right yeah and so then you're if what the motivations may be maybe less cut and dry right like if it's mm-hmm. just oh well you know because we sir pursuit of power is nothing new in, in these types of shows um but the motivation for the power is where you can get creative and that's where, like you said when you the i like the way you put it there the idea of insecurity breeding a, a level of instability that makes it even harder to know like he's harder to trust even as a character right like to trust what the character is going to do next is, is, yeah he's not we purely get, logic. we get the opportunity to see because we get to see all these right. scenes whereas not everybody everybody else gets these glimpses and so we have this sort of you know omniscient sort of look at it right and uh, and instead it's you know <laughs> i'm not sure what i know exactly the more i know maybe the less comfortable i feel about you know what to expect
0: because if he's insecure he's not like a total vulcan in the sense that like he's just pure logic like he will act out of desperation like you could imagine a, a scenario where he sort of acts out his insecurity in a way that might do political damage to himself or others it's just i just feel like to bring, a, bring that level of vulnerability and security to that character makes him even more interesting.
3: Mm.
0: Alright, as promised, here is the final roundtable discussion of Martin's seminal novel, A Game of Thrones. My guests this week are Jan Doolittle-Wilson, professor at University of Tulsa, Lisa Wolfwork, professor at UVA, and Danielle Alisi, professor at Milliken. Join us as we cover Danny's final POV chapter in A Game of Thrones. I'm going to just admit... Lisa, and I think the gang's all here.
2: Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hi, okay? Yes, yeah. hi, Lisa.
0: Excellent, excellent. I'm so glad hi, we're all here. Hi. Um. So I'm I'm pretty excited about this. I I think that I have w- been looking forward to this chapter for. A long time.
4: (laughs) You have. (laughs) You've been been at this a while. Yeah, this has sort of been
0: a two-year process getting through this first book. And the first book, for me, has always kind of been about this final chapter, because this is is Hmm. what the whole thing kind of like turns on this particular chapter. I don't know. I, I think that I missed a lot of, in my memory, I missed a lot of the value of this first book. Because it was overshadowed by this chapter, uh, but I, I've, I mean, I've really had a lot of fun, really doing a close reading of each chapter, all the way through, and with with the help of my friends, with the help of of you all, I've really appreciated it. <laughs> so I think first things first, I think we ought to say hello so people hear our voices and recognize the names associated with their voices. So hello, I'm Anthony.
2: Hello, I'm Danielle. Hello, I'm Lisa. All right, oh, no, so I'm here's Dan. my
0: synopsis Danny is building a pyre, and to the eyes of Miri Mazdur, it looks as if she's playing with blood magic. Danny has her whipped until she's silent. Jorah pleads with his princess not to do whatever she's planning to do. She names herself the heir to the Iron Throne and continues undeterred. Then she gives gifts and names her Blood Riders, ignoring their confused protests. After a bath and a few final moments with dead Drogo, she has Drogo placed on the pyre. She places her dragon eggs next to his body and has Miri tied to it. Finally, when the comet is seen in the sky, she walks into the flames. There she sees visions of beasts and Drogo, and hears the crack of dragon eggs, later among the ashes and embers, she is found unharmed with three baby dragons. So, Lisa, it's wide open. We could talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or really anything.
2: I think something I was very interested in was um, I'm always interested in power dynamics and power relations, um, the ways in which Daenerys's character at this stage. becomes the solution to the problem that the novel opens with at the beginning. And I also really Mm. love how this chapter is a hinge by offering an invitation to the beginning of the second book. The first star that ends up rising is that comet, Mm. that Mm. red comet star. And that's the one that we see streaking across Essos and Westeros and people kind of notice it. I was also thinking about oil, O-I-L, oil, (laughs) oil, And what I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about oil as both, um, a decorative and anointing, Mm. um, type, um, of a type of type of substance that it's precious. Um, that I know at certain points it was, it was traded. It was, you know, it was really significant. So for me on page, on page 802, it says, afterward, Danny sent them all away so she might prepare Cal Drogo for his final ride into the nightlands. She washed his body, cleaned and brushed and oiled his hair, running her fingers through it for the last time, feeling the weight of it, remembering the first time she had touched it the night of their wedding ride. His hair had never been cut. How many men could die with their hair uncut? She buried her face in it and inhaled the dark fragrance of the oils. He smelled like grass and warm earth, like smoke Uh and semen and horses. He smelled like Drogo. Um, And the thing that I find powerful about this is the way that oils come down. Like, you know, her body gets oiled. Um, Her handmaidens oil her body before she prepares Drogo by herself. Um, She calls for additional oil. And what I'm thinking about is oil as both balm, D-A-L-M, something that's comforting and healing and scented, but also oil as accelerant.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, it's flammable. As an accelerant.
2: Yeah. And so that in terms of the fire, these two things work together to provide ritual comfort, balm, healing, um, the sensory aromatic sense of bringing Drogo back to life, even in as he reaches the final act that his body will do which is mm-hmm. burn um, mm-hmm. and be transformed to enter the nightlands to enter the afterlife, but also um, as a way for Danny to kind of seize her own power. And I was, I was looking for that. I'm, I'm just really thinking about the idea that even as she is preparing this funeral pyre, her, her, her breasts are swollen with breast milk milk that was meant to feed her baby Mm -hmm. but since the baby um died it's she has milk that's leaking and weighted breasts that her breasts are manufacturing this milk um and we don't know her whole plan um and nobody knows her whole plan and except for her and i really appreciate the way that we get to be inside of her head at this time and we realize that she is marching toward a destiny um and when jora is like hey um you know call not going to need those three dragon eggs in the nightlands we should um sell those so that we can use them for you know for you can be a rich woman for the rest of your days and she's like they were not meant for selling mm. and it is this idea that she is coming into um, her own development you know you call me a child but children learn children grow and she accepts that she's like yesterday I was a child uh, but today I am a woman and tomorrow I will be old um, so she's absolutely claiming that um, and she is laying out um, her promises to those who are willing to join her it's also for me very palpable very powerful to recognize the liberatory aspect of what Daenerys is doing, that she is working against so many of the cultural precepts that have been established in Dothraki mm. culture. The idea of a woman leading a khalasar, like that is not something that has ever happened before. Neither has three dragons, right? So this idea of of Danny as the breaker of chains of saying, Hey, look, I'm looking at you all. Now you are all currently enslaved. And I now free you, I free you. And we are going to have, you all going to be peers and you know, you'll be as brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and no one's going to own anybody else. Um, And I think that that is significant and that she is willing to step into the fire herself. I think that that is a really powerful gesture of leadership um, that also subverts a lot of the gender expectations that she has been forced to maintain, um, and that I think, and that's one of the reasons that Daenerys has always been kind of a favorite. You know, the idea of her as as a liberator, as well as a leader who was willing to step into the fire, not just throw other people in there. So um, that is just that's one of the things yeah. I wanted to to emphasize. She's
0: really singular in this chapter. It's like, no, like you said, no one really knows what she's planning, but she's almost like everyone else in the chapter kind of thinks like they've got some clue about, like Jorah thinks she's going to kill herself. And I guess these blood riders are just kind of confused. Like, I don't get what you're doing. Um, there's no one really to advise her at this point. At this point, she's she has to keep her own counsel and she has to be so confident that this is the right course of action that that nothing can deter her nothing anyone says in this chapter changes her mind she's determined she's singularly focused on an impossibility right it would take a miracle for this outcome to come to fruition but she's just she's a person of of complete determination and singular focus in this chapter.
2: And she's, de- she's describing herself and betting on herself as that miracle. Um, and I think that that is one of the, the things that I really mm. admire about the way that she sees she seizes the reins of power here. Like, don't call me princess. Stop that. I am actually, I am a mm-hmm. queen. Um, and I need you to use that. And I'm going to build up all of these elements um, and all of these different personality resources, as well as cult- cultural demands. And I'm going to pull all of these to myself. Um, and that means having a co and a series of blood riders. That means you will not be taking me to drop me off to widow daycare <laughs> at the Dosh Queen. I will not be doing right. that. Um, and that is, and that she is going to do that, which has been ancestrally, um, habitual mm-hmm. for her that has been promised to her. Um, that she is stepping into footsteps that have already been made by other Targaryen women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that these are the 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 elements that we see just starting to begin with Daenerys' sure. character in this chapter. And that's one of the things that I find so striking. And I'm looking. I've read that same section about children learn children grow and now for some reason i cannot yeah, I find it on find the it actual paper for it. i am gonna find it i mean the chapter <laughs> is like one of the shortest ones in the whole book i think it's like 11 pages i don't know i do not know why i cannot find that mm. line but i have i just read it a second ago so i'm gonna see if i can grab it but i do think that's important the idea of yeah, okay, go ahead. I will take whatever insult you intend by calling me a child. And I'm going to flip that and say, sure, yesterday I was a child, but guess who has learned something? Guess who has learned something? And I am going to use those lessons for my benefit.
0: I'm kind of fascinated by um, the statement you made at the very beginning that this chapter is the answer to the problem presented In the first chapter. So could you talk more about that?
2: And by the and by the first chapter, I really mean the prologue. Mm. I really mean that very first section when Will and Garrett are out there uh, patrolling north of the wall. Um, and that is the, that is what I always draw to. It's not so much brand's chapter in the very beginning of the book. It's the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I noticed very clearly in the television series that I thought they did really, really well, was um, the way that they established in the prologue that there were White Walkers, that they were real And that it wasn't just um, the tales of people who were bored or whatever, that these things existed for real. Um, And then we know that dragons themselves are the solution to the White Walkers, Mm. you know. And so like I always connect those two things, the the, the prologue and Danny's chapter um, become a neat little couplet in my mind that there has been this insurmountable, what looks like an insurmountable problem. Mm-hmm. And that is these white walkers um, that nobody believes exists, but actually do and are killing people. And the solution to those is dragons, mm. which are the things that are born at the end of this book. So I keep the two of those together in my reading.
0: This really does bring up the, one of the most remarkable things about this book to me, because Clearly we're dealing with fantasy literature, right? And yet in this first book, we have these ice monsters presented in chat in the in the prologue, right? And we see almost zero magic throughout the, you know, the next seven hundred pages. And then we do get the the, the the white who tries to kill Mormont, right? So you, you do sort of get a callback to that ice magic much, much later on. And then, we, of course, we, we have dragons introduced here. But it's a fantasy novel that is almost, you know, 99% of it has zero magic. But it's bookended, right? It's it's like the there there are bookends of ice and fire, right? So I I just I I think that it's kind of a remarkable achievement.
2: Absolutely, I I totally agree with that, and and I think that I guess it goes back to thinking too that for me, I the reason I like Game of Thrones is because it seems multi genre, and that it is a, an an argument that I make is that it's possible. Mm for multiple points of entry. Because the book is so capacious that you can have folks who come from a variety of um, disciplines, um, a variety of interpretive lenses, can all find something in there to appreciate? Mm. Like there's political intrigue. If you like political intrigue, you'll like this. There's family drama. If you like that, there's mm-hmm. there's this. If you like the sword and sorcery, there is that. If you like dragons, mm-hmm. there are those. Mm-hmm. So that like, there's so many different ways. If you like quests, there's those. So like there's so many different um, narrative styles and techniques and textures and colors within the series itself. Mm-hmm is that it makes it really um, pretty easy to appeal to a variety of listenerships, Mm -hmm, a variety mm -hmm. of readerships, a variety of viewerships, all within the same product. And I think that just has to do with the richness of the way that Martin's imagination has unfolded in this project. Absolutely.
0: And I was just thinking of the people here, you know, it's like um, I'm primarily related to studies I'm interested, you know, I'm totally into this specifically because I love fantasy literature. Mm. But it just so happens that it's very, has a very rich religious texture. And, absolutely, you know, Jan was turned on to this because of a class you were doing on disability studies. Was that, was that it, Jan?
4: It was actually my vampires class. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I had so many students in that class who were fans of, you know, fantasy literature uh-huh. and they were appalled that I had not watched or read Game of Thrones, uh-huh. and so, kind of to appease them, um, I started watching the series first, and then just became hooked and started reading the books. And so, yeah, it started with them.
0: Yeah, but what I, I think I remember you telling me like one of your primary interests was disability studies, and that right. that's kind of you. You say it, I, I forget, but I, I was always sure. taken with that part of it.
4: Yeah. So once I started, especially reading the books, although certainly that narrative is strong, you know, throughout the the show as well, that became the hook for me. Sure. Um, I'm not only just a huge fan of fantasy literature, but I started seeing all of these disability narratives in ways that I had never seen them done before, mm-hmm. um, especially in that genre, but really in, in fiction in general. And so for me, that was not only the hook, but what kept me interested. And once I started seeing the books through a disability lens I could not unsee it right Mm -hmm. um so yeah for me and I've I've actually used the books to teach classes on disability now
0: Um, and Danielle when you were kind of seeing this for the very first mm -hmm. time were you already interested in medieval studies
5: yes yeah I was a history major at the at the time yeah I was, yeah, I was 18. So I didn't know I was going to go on and uh, uh, be a history professor. But I, you know, now, now it all seems very clear looking back.
0: So let me ask you this question. So you're like serious historian. (laughs) Were you a little bit like, "Mm, not interested in this pop culture phenomenon? I'm interested in more serious things.
5: Um it, you know it's it's quite the opposite, I think because Game of Thrones uh you know, I started the the show and immediately that summer picked up the books because it's fantasy that dips into historical elements, it's really the only thing I can um stand. It's really the more the ones that try to be more uh uh true to to the story right the ones mm-hmm. without dragons are the ones that drive me crazy really <laughs> so it's the fact <laughs> that it takes so much liberty and it's so playful with it and it's so open-ended and you can follow these threads of history but never have to be kind of thrown out about it by it being like oh well you know that's mm-hmm. not how mongol funeral practices really happen well good it's the dothraki and there's dragons so it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter does it yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and that's what i actually enjoy the most about it because i feel sure. like i can I can I can play around and not uh, get thrown uh-huh. out. Yeah.
0: Okay, so Danielle, Alisi, uh what do you want to talk about? A character, a plot point, a theme, or shall we all climb the ladder of chaos together?
5: Ooh. Um, I probably a theme that I'm really interested in in this chapter, but with a little bit of chaos maybe thrown in there.
0: Okay. All right. Go ahead. Let's see where it goes. Uh-huh.
5: Um, yeah, so I mean, as uh as I was rereading this, two things really struck me. Um, one is that, you know, the last time I came on the podcast, the chapter we were talking about was the initial Miriam chapter. So it was really interesting to kind of come back and think critically about mm-hmm. you know her last chapter after doing her first chapter and, right. and what's happened since then. Um, so so I have some thoughts about just their conversation and then what that, that spurred for me. And then I also wanted just to talk about the elements of the story and how it plays on, but then spins off of some historical elements. It kind of combines Mongol funeral practices with mm. uh, a very old Indian sati practices of Kind of the expecting the the wife to throw themselves on the funeral pyre. Uh, so so that it, a lot of that was coming up as well.
0: It's a lot to expect. Of that's <laughs> a, a lot to expect. Right? Yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, how willing those women were mm-hmm. is sure. something we should definitely question. But um, yeah, so uh, th- those were kind of the, the two main things that I wanted to just address today.
0: All right, let's let's do it. Which one do you want to do? For, I'm kind of curious to hear about the the historical parallels.
5: Yeah, so we can do that a little bit, and then and then maybe uh, go off into some some weeds with the other more character driven discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, by, by no means am I a historian of Mongol history, uh, but I know know a little bit about it. And as far as I've read. Mongol fu- funeral practices are similar to some of the things that we're seeing in the text, though. Uh, several cultures practice uh, this sort of burial practice of uh, or had practiced this of kind of burying with the body or, or sending off the body with uh, items right, to take into the to the next life. Um, believing that the body intact and the items would would travel with the with the person right um so so that definitely comes up kind of burying drogo with with his things with what he might need the horse that's that definitely um we see that in in accounts of mongol funeral practices mm. bearing not only one horse the horse that the um a person would have ridden, a man, the warrior would have ridden, but also mm. uh, a mare so that the horses could breed in the afterlife and he could have more horses. And I thought oh, that was okay. kind of interesting to, to think about. Um, and, and also burying, uh, Mongols would typically bury their dead in the home. So they'd burn the, uh, gear, the yurt, right. Uh, with them. Uh, so, so that, that rang true, uh, reading this. Um, but then it's mixed with this, this kind of the, the the tension throughout the chapter that everyone thinks that she's going to throw herself on the pyre as well. And this is kind of uh, uh, sati practice, uh, that, which, is, which is known in uh, classical uh, India. Um, mm. But the Mongols wouldn't have done that. They might have and they haven't in, in certain circumstances. We have reports of them burying quite forcibly i think uh concubines right the uh, uh different wives with yeah. with the warrior um, oh you know Chinggis khan has that written in his account and his grandson as well but not the first wife the first wife would not be expected to do that is uh, the implication here that
0: the man needs to be able to have satisfaction in the afterlife I mean is this is this like all right not the wife but the concubines because this guy needs to have sex wherever he's going?
5: Well I mean I think that that's Im- certainly implied and that's part of the situation but I, I view it more as um, it's property right it's, mm, yeah. this is part of the property that is being buried with this this mm. person to go on to, to show up all the things that they have they own um, that adds to their to their power to their to their um, access. Um hmm. so so i I think that that's where we see that's like this there's like a class element to that and and then mm. the sexual component I think is you know a part of that um uh, inherently but not not maybe not the main motivation that's that's how I sure,
0: it. yeah, I was just thinking like if you know if this if the stallion also has a mare mm-hmm. right but um but I totally it totally makes sense yeah what you're talking about
5: and and I think what we're seeing here is just the slight difference between uh, right these cultures that uh, Mongols as pastoralists in general had a slightly higher uh position for women uh, than we see in, in some other places right you know that's by no means equality but uh just a, Slightly higher viewing now that doesn't really help the concubines in that, in that scenario, of course, but um, with the in the Indian sati practices we're just seeing much more expectation that the wife would never marry again that they would. they would die rather than than be dishonored to uh, hmm. be married again. So there's, there's these slight differences in, in how these women were viewed as property, as people as in their work in connection to the man. For the Mongols, it would be more expected that the first wife would remarry within the family, within the, the kinship ties, um, because when she reaches her natural death, that's when she joins her first husband in the afterlife. No matter how many husbands she's had since then, she would have joined the first husband. Hmm. So that all kind of stood out to me in the chapter, just you know where we're seeing the, some of these elements echo history, um, but kind of also combine different things to suit the story that we're trying to tell uh, here in this in this book. And and so I thought those those were kind of worth as the historian kind of pulling out what what is this playing on here. Um, even though as we know, what's so interesting about this fantasy version is it takes a very different direction. And that's, that's kind of where the fun really starts to happen.
0: That's
4: mm-hmm. really interesting, Danielle. I was thinking about when you were talking the idea of property, I started kind of nodding, even though none of you can see me nodding, but mm-hmm. um, I, I won't jump ahead of, of Lisa, but when I get to my portion of uh, that's something I would like to certainly, you know, dwell on and expand on, because I think it's, it's really key to understanding just this larger world that Martin portrays, the position of women within that world, and then what Danny has to do to position herself as central. Um, you know, that idea of property being defined through a man or through a son has to fall off necessarily for her to become, um, you know, the, the breaker of chains. Um, the unburnt, you know that that she will dismantle. She will assume when she comes out of that fire.
0: I was wondering, this is, this kind of is a, a larger meta issue, and I and I absolutely do want to get into the particulars of this chapter. But I was recently talking with uh, Kavita Finn, who is a medievalist who's written a little bit about the parallels between queens and Martin's world, and. She made a point that I had never considered before. She said that Martin's view of the medieval world is really through this perspective of scholarship that was published in the 70s and 80s. And that so much has happened in medieval studies since that period. And because of that, Westeros has kind of that feeling of being whitewashed in the same way that... Scholarship of the seventies and eighties viewed a whitewashed Europe, and I'm wondering, Danielle, do you do you get that sense at all? Have you ever thought about what exactly Martin is? What kind of scholarship Martin has drawn upon?
5: Yes, and and that actually does ring quite true in this chapter for me. Um, with in the in the scene where uh you know danny is offering the weapons to the blood riders right and they are all refusing her um because she is a woman very clearly right right
0: and right, right.
5: then jora um uh, he you know he he's the final one and that final beat he accepts her as she is is the only one to swear uh loyalty to her and i think you know we're as a story we're seeing Partially that's because he loves her and we we understand that he has a different relationship to her than these other men. Um, and, and you know, Danny has to literally step into fire and prove herself to be magical to get everyone else <laughs> to swear <laughs> loyalty to her. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Where, where he does it. And, and and but I think something else that's kind of implied in that is uh-huh. that he especially from the earlier scene where she demands that he calls her queen, right? Based on the fact that you were sworn to my brother, well, he's dead, aren't I next? Um, and I think mm-hmm. what's being implied is that there's this Westerosi value to uh, her identity as as a woman, as somebody who is able to rule um, that the Dothraki don't mirror, right? She has to prove herself to them to to mm-hmm. get that um to get that clout i suppose to get that respect uh and and i think that that is a place where we're seeing this kind of antiquated scholarship as the, as if um the white western uh regions are more equal or civilized or advanced than mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. cultures and that that is actually categorically not what we see in the historical records at all it was mm-hmm. quite the opposite um, yeah the so historical. i think it's.
0: It's probably great. It's probably a good idea to just call that out, like th- this. You know, that Westeros is not Europe, right? So let's make that let's make that distinction. Um, and and at the same time, let's also say, well, the story that Martin's telling in this way does not reflect any historical reality outside of the the pages of this book. In some cases, like like for instance, the funeral funeral rites we do see that it touch, at times, portions of the medieval history. But in reality, this book is really touching more of the modern medievalism mm-hmm. or our our modern perceptions of the medieval world, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, Danielle, let's give you – make sure that you've got uh, any other topics – uh, that, that sort of struck you when reading this chapter
5: well totally you know jumping away from the historical conversations and just talking about the story right because i do also mm. love the story uh, there's there's just really interesting uh thing that comes out right in the beginning with uh Danny's interaction with Miriam Muzu. Uh, when Miriam Mazu says, uh, do you think blood magic is a game for children? You call me uh, magi as if it was a curse, but it, all it means is wise. you're a child with a child's ignorance. Uh, this quote stuck out to me, and I've been thinking about it. There's two things going on here in this in their exchange to me. Mm. Um, mm. there's the witch element. I'm really fascinated by this. We talked about it. and last time we we did this chat we did a chapter on Mary muster the how witches are dealt with in a song of ice and fire uh um, is really interesting to me um you know when are they when is it good magic when is it bad magic when does somebody get punished for we see mary muster literally gets burned for it right it's a very classic imagery of the execution of a witch um mm. even if that's historically not always what happened right sometimes but uh so I think that that's interesting to think about how this uh the ending of this w- this particular witch's story plays out um do we read it as justified is it ambiguous those are questions that I I have to to process but then there's this other element that I'm really fascinated to this they're repeatedly calling Danny a child here and and I don't think that that is. The first or last time that it, she's going to be emphasized as a child, right? Um, it, it happens throughout this book, I think, at certain points, mm-hmm. and we know that it's going to happen in the second book when she goes, um, kind of, you know, trying to amass her army, and, and people belittle her and infantilize her. Um, and I never really thought about this too much until rereading this chapter for today. But Danny had a had a husband. And lost her husband, and lost a baby, um, and you know, it, it, and she's about to to ascend to this motherhood character shortly, which I hope we talk about. Um, but she's consistently infantilized, uh, but at the same time, regularly set up as the object of sexual desire, and and I just think that that's worth thinking about of what's going on with Danny's character as somebody who is is a young girl, right? Um, but is also as, as, you know, has been assaulted in this text, has been pregnant, right, is going to lead an army. There's, I I think, just something interesting to think about about how uh, womanhood and girlhood are seemingly very blurred in this Mm. series. But Danny is this, um, to me, just, just really fascinating character because she's asserting dominance so verbally so regularly so outwardly mm-hmm. it's it, it i think it's more there's more tension about how she's talked about for me in the text of being verbally called you are a child right. with yeah. a child ignorance right it's very it's very purposeful right. language meanwhile you know she she did things that are quite literally not you know, we, we don't code as being a child but there's this this stress I think on us as readers of um, her age and what she's going through and I think as we talk about Danny more and more especially in the context of what we see kind of happen in the show it, it is kind of worth thinking about how her life plays out differently uh, even despite being very, very young, and maybe how that's changing her, and how that's how that's affecting her mentally, just something mm. I've been thinking about more, rereading this chapter, how much she's called a child, while at the same time, you know, asserting asserting her dominance and her power is the main theme of this chapter, right? Right. And yeah. it's a transition. I think that's what's most interesting for me is that she's being repeatedly told she's a child, um even though she will be after this this book again. Uh, just something maybe to, to to track in the next book, but when she steps into the fire, it it becomes this very powerful transition into uh, another uh, another phase for her. And I think that that is it's so clearly illustrated. We don't really see this in the show um, as much, but in the book, she is literally breastfeeding these dragons, right? Uh, yeah. There's something so visceral about this transition into uh, motherhood and being the mother of dragons, not just a girl, not just a child, not someone who lost the baby, who lost the husband, I think is giving her this this power, right? this very literal power that makes everybody get on their knees in front of her.
0: There's this one line, and I've been looking for it, I can't find it, but she says something like, Miri called me a child, but Children learn and children grow. Yeah. Um, This is sort of her internal world that she's talking about. And um, I just thought that that was very literally, this is a transition point. You know, this is almost a Phoenix moment for her. And, um, And she calls herself Mother of Dragons for the first time in this chapter. Yeah. And, of course, she literally becomes a mother in this chapter, right? Right.
5: It's just something that definitely made me, you know, this is an ending of the book, but in as you were kind of hinting at earlier, this is in a lot of ways the beginning of the real story, right? Um, it's such an iconic scene, it's such an iconic visual. I remember it was the first scene I saw that made me kind of look at the TV and say, Hey, what show is that? I, I should watch that looks cool, oh, is actually. That right? Yeah, you know, it's it's so <laughs> powerful such a powerful so you visual.
0: wait a second wait a second you saw the last scene of the of the, the <laughs> first <did>. season like <laughs> the first thing you saw
5: I did it used to play uh when I was in college the uh, fraternity house used to to have it on and they'd watch it every Sunday and I'd walk in and out and kind of pass the show and be like that looks uh-huh. silly you know uh and then I saw the dragon I was like wait what are you guys watching that looks very cool actually <laughs>
4: what a great entry point I know I
5: know never forget <laughs> that uh look at me now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay but yeah, yeah.
4: Could I, I was just gonna say could I jump in on that point for me that's really um the focal point in many ways uh, of the chapter and and certainly of Danny's arc going forward right because I've been thinking a lot throughout my career but especially you know in just recent weeks about how women historically to this very day have been so deeply defined by and connected to their reproductive capacity, right? Mm. Their, their, their biological function. Um, and I was recently rereading um, Sadie Doyle's dead blondes and bad mothers. If any of you have have read that text, I used it in a um, class on monsters um, this summer. I taught a class called monsters in American history <clears throat> And we spent a lot of time talking about the association between monsters and women and femininity. And I'm actually looking at the book right now. And what you just talked about, Daniel, so reminded me of one of Doyle's big points, which is that whether you're defining women as children, whether you are defining them as objects of sexuality, as you know Anthony mentioned, it's all about power right? It's all about cementing power over women by tying them to these identities. And if, if you'll permit me, there's a, a passage from Doyle's book where she writes, in a culture where we're trained to protect children and loathe women, the border zone between the two states is the subject of intense superstition and terror.
5: Mm. Puberty,
4: puberty marks not only a girl's first steps toward adult sexuality, but the beginning of her reproductive capacity, the life-giving potency signaled by menstrual blood. Mm. Her blood is terrible because her power is threatening. Her fertility is something that patriarchy must demonize and control in order to secure its own existence. So puberty is a place where daughters begin to turn into mothers, becomes a supernatural event in which a person turns into a monster. Mm. And I think about that a lot when I think about this chapter, because Danny who has been defined throughout the book as a child and Jor is there to advise. And, you know, she's either the daughter of the dragon or she's the sister of the true dragon. And then she's the wife of the call. And then she's the mother of the stallion who will melt the world. All of that is defining her in relationship, not only to the men in her life, hmm. but also to her body, her reproductive capacity. And when she gets to this last chapter, I was really struck by how quickly She goes through the stages of how women are typically defined, right? She's maiden, and then she's wife and mother pretty quickly, and then she's crone, right? Mm -hmm. Because crones were typically defined by their inability to give birth. So she is barren, presumably. And she's a widow, right? But then she takes all of those identities and twists them, almost inverts them in really interesting but super dangerous ways. Right. When she steps out of that fire, she has become the monstrous mother now in many ways because she's nursing a dragon at both breasts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, Mm -hmm. So you've got this image of this young sexualized girl who also embodies all of these identities that are supposed to be used to control her, but which she has now kind of taken control of, which makes her both powerful and incredibly dangerous.
0: Right. Yeah. So she's going from sort of the state of innocence to the state of she's becoming dangerous. She's becoming dangerous,
4: especially now that she has those dragons. Right. Right. Which I hope we'll talk more about. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Jan, uh, I want to be able to uh, give you enough space uh, to cook a little bit here. So uh, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme or one last time? Shall we climb the ladder of chaos?
4: This is the disadvantage of going last because you've all given me so many different directions to think about now that I'm feeling very mm-hmm, scattered. Mm-hmm. I thought I knew what I wanted to talk about, but now I'm just so tantalized by all of these other little threads. Um, I was thinking a lot about Lisa's comment in terms of the book indie, right, and how you, we really have all of the groundwork in this first book that will then be just fully kind of fleshed out, right, in, in our later volumes And, you know, you start with the ice and then you end with the fire. And I think, Anthony, you are the one who mentioned, or maybe it was Lisa, the idea that what is the solution to this this danger, right, presented at the beginning, which I can't help but think about in pandemic terms now. Right. The idea that this kind of zombie apocalypse (laughs) has always been kind of a metaphor for infection and, you know, the danger that presents to to humanity, you know, the potential to wipe out. Uh, everyone on earth. But then you also have the dragons, right, who are kind of presented as a um, counterpoint to this, right? The idea that the only thing that can save us perhaps is this other very, you know, kind of awesome force, but also has the potential to be incredibly destructive, particularly in the hands of someone who either doesn't realize um, the destructive potential or who is willing to wield it for. Um, you know, personal or selfish ends. And so I, I started thinking about how, you know, Martin's been pretty clear that he was using the dragons as this metaphor for, you know, the, the horrors of war and the uh, potential for nuclear disaster. Mm. And he's given several interviews about this. So I was thinking back to earlier conversations we've had, Anthony, about Martin's pacifism. Yeah, and how it really does just permeate, right, so many of the narratives that we see um, throughout the first book and certainly throughout the entire series. You know, Danny who um, manages to get Drogo on board, you know, with the idea that we will cross the Narrow Sea, uh, we will invade, um, you know, Westeros, we will, you know, put our son on the Iron Throne, we will take back what is rightfully yours. And she you know, is, is grateful for that support. She's all for it. She's all behind it until we get to the end of the book. And she sees the human impact, right? She sees the destructiveness that this has wrought. Um, she says to uh, Mary Mazdor, who I always went to call Maz door uh, for some reason. Mm. Um, she says, you've taught me many lessons, right? And I think that's one huge lesson, which is, ruling and conquering have these consequences. And, you know, she says to, to Mary, I saved you. And Mary says, actually, you did not save me. Um, I had already been abused by, you know, three men when you came by. Mm-hmm. I saw my village burned and destroyed. How is that saving me? My people have been scattered to the winds, taken as slaves. And so it's quite right that the first thing she does in this last chapter is, you know, she says to the people, um, the enslaved people, I free you, right? I will no longer have a system based on slavery. But then we find out later that she really doesn't know what to do after that, right? Mm. So it's her kind of trying to figure out you can be a liberator, right? You can set yourself up as a liberator. You can, um, you know, try to to rule, but there's so much more to that than simply freeing or conquering, right? It's It's how to govern. It is how to... Earn loyalty. Do you do that through fear? Do you do that through terror? Do you do that through improving, you know, the social safety net? How do you do that? So, so much of her journey, I think, is is trying to figure that out.
0: Yeah. Just to that point, let me read this. Uh, this is sort of the second to the last paragraph of the of the book, and after them came her handmaids, and then all the others, all the Dothraki men and women and children and Danny had only to look in, at their eyes to know that they were hers now today tomorrow and forever hers mm-hmm. as they had never been Drogos so i th- i think that there's something here there there's something here about about that there's it's sort of there's been the shift that's happened um you know these are now a freed people but in a sense they 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 belong to her that's how she views them so i i find this very complicated and I wonder about stuff. that
2: belong though can i just jump yeah. in and say like belong as belonging in terms of property and and possession is one form of belonging and belonging in terms of loyalty and familiarity is another type of belonging. and which do you
0: think this is
2: i think it's the, i think it's the second i think it's um, a, about community building I think it's about um, not she's I don't believe that Daenerys is using these people as property and that's one of the things I've always liked about her character as someone who was sold and enslaved mm-hmm. she would not support and reproduce the conditions of her own enslavement and that is something that I've always found appealing about her character. So when she says that these are these people are mine, I see this as they are under her protection. Again, this is a feudal society. Everybody is somehow owned and dominated by somebody else, you know, and that that works for both the regal hierarchies of royalty, as well as for the ways that marriages are clearly just alliances between families for the, pr- the preservation of property i don't think when she I, when she says they she looked at their eyes and saw that they were hers in a way they would never be drogos drogo took people by force she is giving people a choice mm. um it could be it's a choice that of course she got kind of painted into this corner um because she was someone who was and we talk about the imperialism of the Dothraki, which is more naked than the imperialism of Westeros. Uh, Westeros is also um, a society that is war driven and property driven and driven um, through the boundaries, through, through the practices and principles of dominance and control. I don't think that when Daenerys says ours in this context, they were hers. I don't think it's about dominance or control. I think it's about finding something new. And that's what happens when you put someone who was formerly enslaved in charge. And that was something that and that's that was one of the reasons why I thought that the the season seven fiasco of turning her into a super mm-hmm. fascist was such bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was lazy and it lacked imagination um, from white people who just really have no idea what it means to be bounded in that way. And so that's why I think it just to me, that's why the whole end of this end of the whole show fell so flat. You know, I'm like, because you don't have to become a fascist. Um, that there's other ways but you know again that's that's yeah i kind of don't
0: want to let danny completely off the hook I, i think that you're right in that you know the whole society is feudal right you know so so it's all based on class and so it's it very well could be that she's saying that the people are hers in the same way that you know that ned stark would say you know these are You know, these people of the North, they're they're mine, in that I have to take care of them, or something like that. I do think that there's a distinct class class function in this that should also be called out. You know, she very much views herself as a queen now, and these are her subjects. I guess I just want to make sure that, of course, she is not a full-blown fascist, but... Even though they are not her property at this point, she is very, very, very much the elite class representative in this group. So I think that there's something about that that needs to be.
2: I I think that we're just, I think that I think I'm certainly in, in disagreement about that only because if we're going to use that analysis, then everyone in Westeros like what about Ned what about I'm with you
0: I'm saying everyone you know what I mean like
2: you know that everybody is you know that there are indeed certain class privileges that come from how you are born and that's you know the idea of you know she's lucky to be born a Targaryen versus being born someone who doesn't have a name you know someone who is anonymous right so of course I don't know. I think that part of the thing that I get frustrated with a lot of Danny critique is that I think that they hold her at a higher standard than they hold anybody else, um, and that there seems to be, I mean, there seems yeah, I that's that, I think that's something that I'm always trying to kind of pay attention to, the idea of, that she is somehow expected to radically change the entire society, which in some ways she absolutely does. By, you know, refusing to be, you know, get dropped off at widow daycare. Right. She's like, no, I'm <laughs> not going to do that. That sounds really boring. And I, I, I will not. Mm, mm. And that I think that that is a really powerful change that she is bringing to the society. Um, and yes, it is in the service of her own queenship. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know the idea that somehow the will to power is only recognized as flawed when it is someone who was a woman doing it or someone um who was formerly enslaved doing it or whatever like that's when we see it's bad when white men are doing it it's just the way it is but when someone who is not that starts to do it then we can see what's really wrong with it and that i think is just a double standard that is frustrating i, I
5: love this can i jump in really quickly
0: absolutely just
5: to to add a yeah my thoughts to it i really love lisa when you 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 mentioned choice right that's what was i was just on the edge of my seat burning like i want to talk about the fact that they chose this right because i think you are uh right in this and i think that that is it it is creating something new as you said there's another way um and yes all of these things that everyone's mentioning i I think are definitely circling around this this tension of the double meaning of belonging right um but i think choice is so important here in the way that she phrases it and it always brings me back i i just i have to read danny's story always to the whole series um I, from that the the first moment of what happens to her being sold to drogo and their wedding night and everything that happens after that about being about consent right there's a lot to talk about with danny and consent and choice yes 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 and yes. so that comes back here so powerfully as you said she's a person who was enslaved, who was sold, and she was also a person who didn't get to consent. And now there's this power in the the people choosing to stay. And the fact that she offers freedom to the enslaved people before she shows the magic dragon fire powers, right? She offers that choice before they even know that she you know, could potentially burn them if she, they make the wrong choice, right? There's just so much in uh, uh, Wade on offering them the choice to stay or leave and be free, but be a follower. And as you said, community, right? And I think we use possessive language when we talk about our family and community all the time. My mother, right? My child, Like we use possessive language. There is a, there is a possession element to it, but that's not, it doesn't always mean uh, property as much as it could mean community, like you're saying. And, and I just think that there is a lot to think about, about how choosing a relationship makes it more powerful in Danny's stories. And that is so clearly shown by at first, her relationship with Drogo is not one of choice, but it does become one of choice. And that's when she becomes more powerful, right? So our, are is the fact that these followers chose her, is that actually implying, right? That it's not that she owns them better than Drogo own them, but that their relationship is more powerful because they chose it. That's how I read
2: it. Hmm. Hmm. And I, I, that's exactly what I was that's exactly what I was imagining in the idea of, you know, and again, of what, what kind of choice is it? I mean, honestly, they're in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, sure, they can leave, you know but you know, the food and water's with her, (laughs) like, honestly, like how, (laughs) like, it's not really like, (laughs) Hey, do you want to go to Red Lobster? Do you want to go to a different restaurant? Like that? These are both, they're all terrible choices, you know, but it feels like that this is one of the things I think that I get stuck on. It's like the way that Martin has drawn this society is the way that we sometimes find a lot of women, um, created or pressured in historical fiction. You know, like one of my favorite books by Toni Morrison is A Mercy. And in that book, she has three what she calls unmastered women. Um, and that there's somehow there's no way that these three women are just going to be allowed to live and work this farm in Maryland on their own without the Baptists coming over, without a husband, without a man being involved. Like it's just not going to be possible. There has to be st- that that, that, the, that the white woman is going to have to remarry again because she won't be allowed to maintain the property and conduct business by herself, right? And so there's these certain ways that Daenerys is making these choices now and embracing and claiming the thing that has been held out to her as a carrot all along. And I think she's always somehow an attachment and not a person invested in in charge of her own life and her own destiny, as well as the destiny of other people. And I think in that change, this is where I tend to see um, a kind of a feminist slash liberatory process taking place. You know, um, it's kind of like you know at the end when they talk about like when I think it was Sam Tarly who was like, "Hey, you know, what we should do we should let everybody have a vote." You know, yeah. and like everyone's like, "Democracy, what a <laughs> stupid ass idea." You know, what that's that's not going to work. You know, it's that it's the same principle right at work here with Daenerys building a female centered, you know, leadership style, um, who also has what's essentially nuclear capability. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I've, I've just found interesting throughout the series overall. And
4: Lisa, you talked about process. That's one thing I just, I love, especially about this first book. It, and and Danny so illustrates that idea of evolution, right? And it's not just this important arc of, you know, being attached to a man, you know, how she is identified and how that, that slips away by the time we get to the end and how that does make her really um, just, stand out in really dangerous ways in a society in which women aren't supposed to do that. You're absolutely right, right? They only have any form of power they have is always connected to how they are attached to a man, whether that's a husband, a father or a son, right? And so the women who are the most powerful, but also the most dangerous in Martin's narratives are those who gradually step outside of that, and are punished actually for it in many ways, right? Those who are outside of the so-called shadow of male protection um, find power, but also are are punished. And I was thinking so much about all of this kind of foreshadowing and and for the record, Lisa, I agree with you about the bullshit of what they do to Danny um, in the show, but it's not just from a gender perspective, it's from a disability perspective, right? And so this this old tired trope of, you know, a woman who is outside of patriarchal control to a certain extent, um, who can't handle uh, the the power that she has amassed and and goes mad, right? The powerful woman goes mad trope that we see again and again and again. But that again is another way in which historically women have tried to be contained and controlled, right? Just call them mad, call them crazy. People do that throughout this chapter, all right? She even says at one point, "Maybe I am, right? Maybe I am mad." Uh, this is at the top of six seventy of my version. They thought her mad. Danny realized perhaps she was. She would know soon enough. And that not only has been a tool to control and contain women, but it's also an it really shows us just how stigmatized. Um, the disabled population has been <laughs> throughout history. If you can discredit someone by calling them crazy, what does that tell us about how we view people with, you know, mental disabilities and mental health challenges? So, you know, we we see that throughout the narrative, and we see this tremendous um, social disability model that Martin builds throughout the narrative. But then we also see how again. Um, it has been used to contain and control women, and I'm I'm really interested to see where Martin goes with this. If he departs from uh, some of what happens to to Danny in terms of, you know, the crazy mad woman trope, um, or if he will use that more as a critique of how we have tended to see women, powerful women throughout history. If he ever finishes the books,
0: <laughs> I it, I don't want to shortchange this conversation. Uh, I do want to talk about Miriam as and give her a little bit of space here because I just, I really feel like um you could, e- you could easily read her as a witch, right? You could just say, well, she, you know, she, she was up to no good and she messed with the wrong person and this is what she gets. But that's not how I read her at all. And I'm wondering, um, Danielle, if if you might be able to help us a little bit with maybe a more nuanced perspective with Miri Mazdur. I, I'd like to hear maybe your take on her.
5: Sure. Yeah.
0: How should we read her?
5: I mean, I think that it's, uh, there's no one way. Right. Um, and it's, Complicated. Uh, I I enjoy this chapter because in previous Mary Mustard chapters, uh, the one that we discussed, I um, I felt a little bit more clear whose side I was on. Um, but in this chapter, I don't know. You I mean you just can't help but root for Danny, right? She's just mm. so powerful, and it's so gratifying to see this transformation. And it's just it's such a moment and you want to give it to her. And then, but like, there's this, there's this just poking this in the back of your head with the Miriam is Dura part. And I think that that's so interesting because it does um, just put a tiny wrinkle in in and how awesome Danny's being right now, right? Um, but I think that we could read them as, I think you could see that, it, you know, it so often We're asked to pit women against each other which one do we side with right Mm -hmm. uh whose side are we on and instead i think it's much more interesting to say um both right like i i get it from both of their perspectives they are both having to live in this world and make their way in this world and they unfortunately had to come up against one another and Danny's our main character, but there's something really interesting about Miriam Uzger's kind of anti-imperial resistance uh persona, That's much how she reads often for me. Um, yes, I think that she's is coded as a witch character, as somebody who works a lot in the history of witchcraft and magic. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's very cool and good actually. Um, and that we should, we should look at these these characters uh that maybe use healing and magic um in more nuanced ways um then maybe this series all often allows us to right i think that there's there's something kind of uh mm-hmm. it tends to be coded bad unless it's helping the man right? um and what makes miriam muster so complicated is that we would have loved her as viewers as readers if her magic did Help Drogo, right? And we got to see more Jason Momoa on our screens, but that's not what she did. And so huh. there's this, there's this anger against her, and yet what she's doing is resistance. She's resisting mm-hmm. this slaving, raping horde that comes through, right? It's These conquerors, and whether it's real magic or it's not, I think that that's kind of um, not always clear uh is she what is she really doing what did she really perpetuate did she kind of just allow his his injury to get worse and then you know danny forces her and, and the the writers force her to to act even more and then it gets really crazy Right? there's just something so interesting here and um, I really, I really like how she says to Danny, you know, you're not going to hear me scream, like resisting to the very end. It's always resisting this power. Mm-hmm. And, and Danny's mm-hmm. like, I don't want to hear you scream. I just want your death. And it is kind of this, this queen, this execution. It's not there to torture her, but she needs to be punished for what she did. And you just, you, I, I think we must resist taking a side of these two women and just saying, wow, there's something so interesting going on from both of their point of views the world that
0: they are forced to live and move through. Okay. I'm going to push back on this a little bit. <laughs> um,
5: Please. Yeah. You I think, work with.
0: I, I just, I feel like, okay. Yes. Um, are you putting me in a situation where I can't notice that one of these people is burning the other person at the stake? Why? Well, because the child of this woman was going to be, the stallion that mounts the world, and we know what that looks like, and Miriam Azdoor knows exactly what that looks like. It looks like raping and pillaging, and so she wants to put a stop to this, that's how I'm reading her, and because of that, because of what she does for her people, she gets burned at the stake. How do I not look at the person who's burning her at the stake and think, I'm not rooting for you right now, like I there's a lot of other reasons why I like you. I'm just not gonna root for you right now. You're burning this other person at the stake.
5: I get that I get that impulse, but I think you're still we're still stuck in this mindset of we have to root for one of them because it's a competition, right? One of them has to be right and fully, and the other one has to be wrong fully um and instead maybe we could be we could think about instead of who do we side with how do we empathize with them both um because whether danny's baby is going to mount the world and what that implies to someone like miriam muster and what she's seen and gone through it's danny's baby and Mm. uh she's a mother who lost her baby and as lisa poignantly pointed out her breasts are still filled with the milk of her dead baby and we can and this is a transition into her mother role a brutal mother she has dragons she's going to kill people with them but there's i think there's room to just empathize with them but instead of trying to to pick a side or to root for one hmm. it, i mean because we don't have to it's just the story this isn't real no one got burned <laughs> okay. so we can just think through it and, and what that means and what that's telling us and and also again to to one of lisa's earlier points um Yeah, she burned someone and there's something to think about with witches and witchcraft and burning and throughout history and how many women uh, were executed in this way for 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 completely false and true reasons. Right. Um, But there is a there is a lot of executions that are more seem seemingly more justified throughout this text that maybe we don't we don't code as so brutal because it's not a woman doing them.
0: Let's I'd, I'd like to hear from other folks about this.
2: I'm happy i'm happy to wing in real quick um i i think what we are looking at is the inside state of imperialism and what that requires in order for danny to conquer westeros she has to build she has to get out of exile and she has to build an army sufficient enough to take over. This is going to require a lot of raping and killing in order to do this. It's also gonna require, um, at least the way that Drogo was doing it, a lot of enslavement. Um, and that the way that he got the money was by going to little villages, taking the little bit of resources they have, but essentially turning the people themselves into resources. Um, and that, you know, what what I would like to think, and one of the things I like about what Daenerys is doing is that this represents a transformation of that particular style of power? Um, and I think you're right, she is murdering someone, she is executing someone, she is using a ritual sacrifice. She has learned that Drogo's life uh, was meant to pay for, you know, that her baby's life, the dead horse, the baby, all of that was meant to pay for Drogo's life. It didn't work that way because he got life. But the life was, you know, was not a living life. It was like a living death. And, you know, so she's learned from that. And so she's like, well, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently. And what I'm hoping will come from this are the the that I will have these three dragons that will mean that people will fall into line without having to be conquered. Um, And so I'm one. So that's just something I think about. I'm not trying to excuse Danny's imperialist drive because she absolutely has that. Uh, She wants to conquer. You cannot conquer without killing. But she, I think, wants to try um, as far as I can tell. I also think she has um, a bit of a personal grudge against Mm Mary door, who she blames for, you know, Danny believes she's done something nice, which she hasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, She believes she's done something nice, um, which is, you know, things could have been a lot worse. You know, that's what she's that's what Danny's imagining. So she's imagining that she's got some kind of built in loyalty from Mary I's door, which she absolutely does not have. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, she is also giving up. I feel like she's releasing a lot. In this, in this scene. She's releasing a lot, even as she's claiming. She's releasing her dependency on Drogo. She's releasing her dependency on her brother or on anybody else. And instead, she's starting to make her own decisions based on what she herself has learned, as she talks about on 805, like, yes, I'm a child, but children grow, children learn. And she's, you know, and that's how children go from being children to adults. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think she thinks she is doing is she is, for the first time, seizing the reins of her own power. And while she is willing to free people who had been enslaved and say, hey, let's just all get along or whatever, she is not going to try to reinvent the entire wheel, right? And, you know, and to say, well, well, you know what, I'm going to be able to do this without killing anybody. I'm going to just do this with, with rainbows and sunshine and everything's going to be fine this way. You know, she will kill Mary Mazdur because she believes Mary Mazdur, she believes Mary owes her, her life, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, that's, I think that's what, that's what I'll, that's what I'd add. Yeah. Can I ask the group a question? Because
4: these are all really good thoughts. Um, I I think certainly in Danny's mind, she is burning uh, Mary as door partly for vengeance, right? I mean, certainly. Um, but I think you're right, Lisa, in, in a sense, if you killed my son, right, um, then it's life for a life. And then there's also the idea of, well, this will help bring about the ritual, right? Uh, sacrificing death, blood, this brings about Uh, the resurrection of the eggs. Although there is some speculation that it's really Danny's sacrifice, right? That that raises the eggs. It's not so much Mary. Um, But one thing that has always struck me in this passage, and you both mentioned it. So this is why I'm asking the group because I have different thoughts about it. When she pours the oil over Mary's head and says, you know, thank you for all the lessons you've taught me, right? I've learned a lot from you. I'm paraphrasing. Martin writes that there's fear for the first time in Mary's eyes. And I've read some commentary that suggests, oh, that's when Mary is afraid because she knows that she really is going to die. Well, Mary knew that long before. I think that the minute Mary confesses to Danny, um, you know, and Danny confronts her and says, you killed my child. You knew exactly what you were going to do. Mary just comes out with it. Yes, of course I knew. Your son was the stallion who who would mount the world. I was saving my people. Right there, she knew um, that her life was in danger. Do you think that she shows fear? Because prior to that moment, she really was justified in thinking, my life is worth it, right? I'm going to be executed, but I saved my people. Um, I Mm. put a stop Mm. to this raping and pillaging and destruction of my country in doing what I did. You know, she keeps calling herself the shepherd of her flock. That that language is really important. She does see herself as the protector and savior, much like Danny will come to see herself as the protector and savior of her people. But when Danny says to Mary in that moment, you've taught me a lot. Is it that Mary kind of realizes in that moment, Oh my goodness. in doing what I did I really ultimately have not saved anyone. I have unleashed a much more destructive force on the world because I have taught this person Mm. how to resurrect these dragon eggs, which have the potential to wipe us all out. Is that the fear uh, that that Mary is registering in that moment, do you think?
2: And I want to just add on a bit as we to chew on your great question, Jan, because if you look at it, it doesn't say that she has fear it says as she stepped away danny as she stepped away danny saw that that the contempt was gone from the magi's flat black eyes in its place was something that might have been mm. fear. Yeah, that's mm. an important distinction, Lisa. And I think that's an important, I think that is an important distinction and that what we were able to see transform that, that, that she, when she was calling her, oh, you're a child, you're a child. This is not like, oh, you're an innocent that's sympathetic or whatever. She said that with contempt. Yeah, she's foolish. So right. the yeah. contempt that Mary had for Danny is gone. And in its place is something like fear. And that, I think you're right, is a powerful transition. And it might be for the reasons you described, like, oh, wait, there's something going on here that's larger than I, even I knew of. Um, and so, the I don't, and it makes me wonder too, like, are we okay with Miriam Azur as long as she's being this kind of humble servant of the great shepherd, right? Because yeah. the people, um, they're not a combative people. They're not like Westerosi. They're not like the Dothraki, which is a very combative people, they are much more like, you know, lamb people, sheep people or whatever, which is one of the reasons why the North Rocky think that it's a gift to rape them. You know, like that's what they're for. They're here to be raped by us. Right. And, you know, she is, you know, that we might feel like, oh, well, she's such a victim. This is really unfortunate. But when Mary starts to be more aggressive and more deliberate, I wonder if sympathies shift. Yeah. You know, yeah. because you said Danny is the main character, when in fact Danny is the colonizer. She is the imperial power. She is the one that's coming in and seizing people's resources and destroying their communities for her benefit. Right. You know, and that's how she got into this trouble in the first place.
4: And do you think too, Lisa, that she Mary to a certain extent underestimates Danny because she's a woman? Right. Again, this is a culture where we're so used to ascribing power and and strength and threat to a male body right so is it true do you think Uh to claim that mary thinks oh i've wiped out the stallion we're good right Right. (laughs) i got rid of this son we're good Mm -hmm. underestimating the idea of oh there's this woman i didn't really kind of take into account
2: well you know what i i think that she did take her into account and that's why i think whatever was done to danny's body in the tent with the chanting and all that has rendered her sterile Right. Like, so the idea that not only did she lose her baby, she lost the ability to have any other baby,
4: which is where she ascribed her power, right? The idea that she will have power if she reproduces. So when I say that she underestimates, right, it's the idea that she's not thinking in terms of Danny being powerful on her own, removed
2: from that reproductive
4: capacity. Mm, mm
2: And and one of the things that I think that makes Danny so powerful, and one of the reasons that I like her, is that she has been able to reproduce asexually. Mm. And she's been able to reproduce in such a way where the line between her and her children is so strong that nobody else can do it. You know, that only a Targaryen can birth dragons because you have to sit in there with fire, I guess, right? And so that there is this really interesting question and it goes back to some of the questions you were asking earlier, Jan, about about reproduction and about the ways that girls and women gain power as well as lot more social attention once they reach reproductive age Hmm. Um, and that there is something that's attached to the female body specifically that becomes um, a site for contestation of, in some ways, global politics mm-hmm. for this world.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that there's something here about the kind of children that Targaryens are able to produce. They're not just fantastic beasts, right? Um, they're they're creatures of war and they're they're creatures of conquest. And so here we have, yes, we have the ice monsters at the beginning. We've got the fire monsters at the end. um, And she's the mother of dragons. This is just another way for her to say, look, I'm a fully realized Targaryen. And what do Targaryens do in this world? They conquest and they use these children, these dragons, to take over. And so I I do think that there's something here about her becoming a fully realized Targaryen, mm. um, which is very dangerous, right? You know, here we have we're seeing this phoenix imagery, and she is she's not just going from childhood to womanhood; she's going from, um, I guess, Khaleesi to Conquistador or something like that.
5: I I think it's really interesting to think about these two. Characters as you know, as, as we've all been saying, they're res- they're both resisting the uh, the the powers that are that are against them. And Danny, we see as more. I mean, she's resisting like these more traditional patriarch patriarchal um, limitations and constructs. And then there's this, I think, really compelling resistance from Miriam Mazur uh, uh, against the colonialism implied through Danny, the white woman's resistance of patriarchy at the disadvantage of of other peoples, right, and other cultures, um, and they they play against each other, and we, so I think that there is a is a real tension um, about that uh, because they they both have. Things to fight against, and here they come to a head because Danny's methods of resistance are often colonial, right, uh, and mm. imperial in nature. And so, and we say, "Oh, that's that's bad too." And I, yeah. So, I mean, I'm by no means excusing her her actions. In fact, I I tend to to lean more uh, or to be less of a Danny know, a fan in some of these chapters because of these elements, but yeah i just think that this particular one offers something really really interesting to to think through and and again like what could that facial expression be other than fear um, what are other reactions that that would make sense to us because there is that ambiguity left um, is it just is it respect is it acknowledgement that danny is more than she she bargained for is not a child anymore, right? She's the one who often belittles her. You know, they're both mm-hmm. women, but Mary Mustard infantilizes, Danny, you are a child, you are ignorant like a child. Uh, let me help you, let me show you, right? Um, and so is it this, is she recognizing the transition? Is she recognizing, as others have said, that she's created something perhaps worse than if she just um, didn't do anything? And yet I think there's just something so powerful in in her methods of resistance all the way to the end, even if, mm. um, you know, it, ultimately she does not win against Danny. There's something really powerful about that.
0: The other thing that I was curious about, because I feel like, Lisa, you call our attention to the book ending element in this chapter. You know, we've got mm-hmm. fire on the end. We have ice at the beginning. I also want to call out that we began this book with an execution, right?
1: Yes. Ned
0: chops off the head of this guy who's fleeing the monsters, and you know he's a he's a man of the Night's Watch, and so you know he's he's in a system that does not allow him any kind of freedom, and so he runs, and the only his his life is totally forfeit to him. He's desperate. Ned thinks, "I'm going to keep the king's justice. I'm going to chop off this guy's head." And in my mind, that clues us in immediately that clues us into like this guy who's being coded as sort of a father knows best good guy is really a morally gray character. And so we should be not just be questioning this guy's motives. We should be questioning the whole system uh, that allows this guy to have power. And then we get to this final chapter. And and honestly, I don't I don't fault the deserter. For the actions that he's taken at all. I I think he he this guy has zero options. And then we have we jump ahead to this last chapter and we again see an execution. And it's not a beheading, but it's it's a burning. And in the same way, I I kind of think, okay, so yeah, here we have this protagonist, Danny, but I think that we're supposed to also be reading her in more complicated ways. I think she's a morally gray character in the same way that Ned was. And it's the system that makes someone like Mary Mazdoor an impossibility. Her life is an impossibility because there was nothing else that she could have done in this system. She was she was going to be steamrolled by the system no matter what. It just so happens that in this case, it's Danny who's doing it.
2: You know what what this makes me think of is that Ned is is indeed a morally great character. Well, I guess one could see him that way. But when he's maintaining the king's justice and this whole lecture and stuff he gives to Bran or whatever, like all of that's because he thinks what he's doing is. The, the law. He thinks that, hey, these guys have been put on the night's watch as an alternative to incarceration and he is now, you know, he, at, as a deserter, he has forfeited that and my job is to kill him because as a as a lesson, as a consequence for desertion. This mm-hmm. is something that they all mm-hmm. know when they sign up, blah, blah, blah. So he thinks he's doing the right thing. He doesn't know that he is, he is execu- he's, and though the person did indeed desert. That was the, that was the crime that this person committed. The motivations for that crime were actually accurate Like he really did freak out and see some white walkers. And, you know, that just made him lose his shit. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and I don't know if, if everyone else had seen the thing that he saw, you know, but it feels as though this is one of the, one of the several ways where Martin gives us readers information that the other characters don't have. And we see that a lot through the through the book, like when we get all these different point of view chapters, we know what Sansa's thinking and we know that she her thoughts are wrong about that because we have previous information from another character. And so the fact that we see what could be construed as um, unjust executions, um, you know, as opposed to whatever a just execution would mm-hmm. be right. It seems that seems significant to me. Um, for how we imagine the way that power unfolds and who is allowed to have it, right. who can be trusted to right. have it, who can do it well versus who is corrupt and corrupting. Um, and I yeah, feel like... Yeah, the whole like system's supporting N-
0: Ned. And, of course, Danny has to be the singular. <laughs> you know, she mm-hmm. she has to have the only vision in this entire group because no one has her vision, right? So
2: exactly and she has to hold that vision for everybody and this this idea too that through yeah I mean I think it, it it's not the kind of thing that you can say is this right or is this wrong because clearly you know burning people alive is wrong you know beheading people is wrong that's not something we really get down with anymore <laughs> but and, and and there's no buts about that and Uh, I think it's absolutely worth considering that what Danny is trying to build is something she has never seen. Mm. Um, And I think that the idea that somehow she is unburdened by all these different expectations that have been forced upon her by her brother, by Jorah, by, Mm. by Drogo, by everybody, right? The fact that she is now able to make her own choices and do things the way that she thinks they should be done, um i think that that is meaningful to me um and it seems to be one of the ways that female power has been executed in the series
0: yeah let's i don't know is it do you feel like we've done enough work here uh with miri i do feel like she is a very misunderstood character and i and so i i almost feel like i'm more fascinated with that than anything else um But I I just want to give anyone else a chance to jump in before we wrap here. Okay, I'm just going to call out some notable introductions in this chapter. We see Danny claim queenship for the first time. We see the phrase mother of dragons for the first time. And we see dragons for the first time. So those are all very notable uh, in my mind. Um, notable departures, Mary Mazdur would be the, the most notable departure. And then book versus show differences. And maybe I, I could get your help with this, um, but Danny sees this very interesting vision in the fire uh, that we don't get in the show. She walks in, it's like the flames become creatures to her eyes. And she actually sees Drogo, you know, yes. mount up and ride off. Right. So that's, to me, that's fascinating. Um, did you all notice anything else? Any other differences here?
2: I loved how she talked about it as a wedding.
0: Right. Interesting.
2: I thought that when that was something that I didn't see in the show at all. Um, she that, that, that the way that it gets discussed as a wedding. And I think that's also on page 805. Um, she says, um, the, the, Danny thought as she took a step closer to the, the conflagration, the brazier had not been hot enough. The flames writhed before her like the women who had danced mm. at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils. Fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Yeah. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin sl- flushed and glowing. This is a wedding too, she thought. Miriam's door had fallen silent. The god's wife thought her a child, but children grow, and children. Hey, learn. we found it. We yeah. found, it. We found yep, the yep <laughs> I dropped it in the chat a little bit ago. I was like, I know, I saw those words. (laughs) Okay, Uh, but the idea of this being like a wedding—that was really interesting.
0: Why is is this a wedding? Well,
2: because her first wedding was just a bundle of confusion, right? Her first wedding, and I think that I'm not sure if it was Danielle or Jan who talked about. And the way we talk about it in class is as compromised consent—a bit, maybe Mm -hmm. a bit of compromised consent. She's already been sold for the sexual transaction. Um, by her brother, so who has kind of pimped her out um, in exchange for yeah. this army, right? And yet Drogo does ask for consent when they have that first time, you know And so when she says no and she and it and it says she knew it was a question. Mm. And then she says yes. And I feel like the show by taking away Danny's yes, at the beginning of the series and kind of putting her and it doesn't mean that they end up, doesn't mean that her sex life ends up being a positive experience because it's not at the beginning, the beginning of the, of the relationship right. at all. Um, and not until she, you know, she learns and like, you know, and then they have this public sex act and then everything changes, you know, but the very beginning, her yes was there. um And that, that to me, is something that I wish the show had done a better job of, you know? Um, And I think that they, I I really do find it quite perverse, actually, um, to turn a scene that was one of compromised consent and one of a direct yes into a violent act of humiliation um, that the viewers also get to enjoy as sexual titillation. I thought that was so fucked. FYI. Mm. Sorry. And just, but like, so that's I'm, I'm just gonna land there and so the idea of this being like a wedding as well the idea that this is something that she has put into motion as opposed to something she is just the object of
0: sorry yeah. danielle you were gonna say
2: no i
5: mean that, that i think that covered it because i wanted to really emphasize that this was the wedding she chose um and i think it bookends the that consent issue um uh, powerfully as as you're pointing out so i just wanted to yeah agree and, and emphasize that it's the second wedding of her own uh, creation has a power there. Yeah.
4: And I appreciated, Lisa, how you said compromised consent. Mm. One thing that has been sort of discouraging to me in the discourse around book and show differences, I've heard many people say, well, in the books, it's consensual, in the show, it's not. Mm -hmm. And what do we mean by consent when we're talking about a child, Right. right? So we would say in the books, it's not consent because she is a child, but it is certainly different right, from what we see in the show version. Mm. Um, So I appreciated that idea of compromised consent. I think that's a really important um, distinction. Yeah,
2: I agree. And I think for me, that was important because it's not just because she's a child. It's also, in addition to her being a child, it's because she was actually sold Sold. as a political Mm -hmm. pawn. Like that is something that, you know, she has in, in the same way that so many of the marriages worked as compromised consent as well. Like your father would set you up with some boy when y'all were eight. And by the time you turn 14, you end up being married to this person. You might have sex with them. You might even say yes that first night, but your yes doesn't matter. You know, and this is something that at least for my field in African-American studies that we have great familiarity with because of the U.S. history of enslavement and how enslaved women were never, consent was never an issue. And even if you want to think about these quote-unquote romantic relationships between masters and, you know, slave owners, slave captors and enslaved women, there is no way you can, no one, you can't consent when someone owns Mm -hmm. you. Like, you can't consent. That doesn't matter. If someone has paid money for you, whether you pay money to someone else, not to you, to somebody else, your consent is not It's not something that matters, you know, and that's why I talk about the compromise consent. It's one of those things that I find very helpful as in reading the text beyond it's um, those folks who really want to kind of keep black people out of Game of Thrones at every turn, you know, because they want to pretend that it's actually medieval Europe and that these people (laughs) are their actual relatives, you know. Um, and so that I find as a matter of fiction, it, this is one of those historical facts that I think is really useful to kind of keep in mind.
0: Danielle, you had your hand up earlier. Did you want to uh, jump in here?
2: I think I was clapping in reaction oh. to, to all of these comments. Because, because <laughs> okay. Just <laughs> as a point of great.
0: clarification, all right. If this is a wedding, to whom is Danny marrying?
2: I know, I know, I know. It's on page 806. Okay, tell me. (laughs) So if you look at that top paragraph um, about the crackling fire and the screams of frightened horses and the voices of the the Rocky raised in the shouts of fear and terror and and Sir Jorah calling her name and cursing. No, she wanted to shout to him. No, my good knight, do not fear for me. The fire is mine. I am Daenerys Stormborn, daughter of dragons. Bride of dragons, mother of dragons, don't you see? Don't you see? With a belch of flame and smoke that reached thirty feet into the sky, the pyre collapsed and came down around her. Unafraid, Danny stepped forward into the firestorm, calling to her children.
4: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So I think that we kind of gravitate to the mother of dragons metaphor, right? Mm. But if this is truly a wedding, we also need to recognize that she's calling herself the wife of dragons. Um, And that for some reason, that metaphor doesn't really stick in the political narrative. Uh, But I think that there's I think it's a really interesting uh, image here.
2: I wonder if there's a difference you see between being the bride of dragon versus the wife. Is there a difference between a bride and a wife? Because she doesn't say "wife of dragons," she says "bride of dragons." Hmm. Hmm. To me, daughter of dragons, bride of dragons, mother of dragons. To not a wife. To me, though. it echoes the bride of Christ uh,
5: uh, epitaph that we that we hear. Like for nuns, yeah. it's, it's a religious marriage in a way. To me,
0: interesting. I, I hadn't noticed that at all, but I will note that the oil used uh, in the ceremony very much uh, is very much a messianic um, note and uh, you know messiah means anointed so I and also in addition to that what do we see we see a resurrection in this uh-huh. chapter so I was
4: curious your thoughts because the red comet right yeah that appears when Christ is born course, um, the the three denials yeah. right from her oh um, from I love it very well
0: done yeah um
4: sacrificing herself, the resurrection. I mean, it's, it's all over the yeah. place. And then the, the language of bride, mm-hmm. uh, certainly bride of Christ, Danielle, that you mentioned so much language there. And, and so
2: much uh, symbolism yeah. that is pulled directly from hmm. uh, Christianity. And I think a, it's either pulled from Christianity, or it's also so prevalent that Christianity picks up mm, on it yeah. as well. <laughs> and that's what I grab with mm-hmm. the blood of my blood as well, because you know, think about blood also being an important sacrificial, um, um, an important sacrificial element. And it's not until she steps out of the fire. That they're like, okay, now I'm down to be your blood rider because you are really mm-hmm. that bitch. Because look at you, you came out of fire. <laughs> and going back burn. to
4: Danielle's earlier point about that's literally what she has to do to gain their loyalty. Yeah, right, exactly. she has to burn herself. When you know, men wouldn't have to go to that extent.
5: And I also wanted to say too, this uh, another way to, to view bride um, uh, to your question, Lisa, is uh, I think it's the transition, right? It's and there's and we're seeing. This chapter is her transition. It's her transition into what she's going to become—the mother of dragons—and mm-hmm. all these—and and being a bride—that's a powerful and important moment. But it's a transitory moment. It's liminal. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's it's yes. going to end, and then yes. you are a thing, and then you're defined by that thing. But it's open and it's full of possibilities. On that one day, you're a bride,
2: and you're only a bride on your yes. wedding day. <laughs> But it's also, again, yeah.
5: this inversion of
4: taking these traditional, um, you know, markers of womanhood and adding dragons to it. I, I can't get past this idea mm. of, you know, again, women's lives are usually defined by maiden mother mm-hmm. crone. And right. she still uses that language, but in really in transgressive ways, I guess, you know, by attaching those mm. Uh, markers those labels to the idea of dragons right monstrous children um i just Mm. i i think that's such a a key element here the monstrous motherhood and the monstrous children
5: and and she births to that point right i mean i think that there's something in the fact that she is also representing the dragon she's a targaryen they view themselves as literally dragons and so by saying bride of dragon mother of dragon is it's actually is it actually claiming herself as the thing she's linking herself to and kind of creating this circle that excludes any other intervention there.
4: And Danielle, you're right. If you think about her dream, right? When she is recovering from birth and she has the dream about waking the dragon. Do you remember the language there where she goes from a very kind of peripheral relationship to the dragon to being the dragon herself, Yeah. right? When she thinks it's Rhaegar, it's actually her face behind the shield.
2: Right. Hmm. And that what we're seeing established here is like her dragon bona fides huh. and what and, and that the, the dragons themselves, because they are so powerful, they change the rules of the game entirely, entirely. you know, yes. that this was what the very first Targaryens used to conquer Westeros. And she yeah. is and she is now in possession of the dragons and that those are the things that set her apart. And there's other things that nobody else has or can have because they're attached to her blood in particular. Right. and as you
5: said before, produced, reproduced asexually, so they're not shared with anybody else. It's just her that made them
2: exactly. She doesn't have to share custody with anybody yeah. of these dragons because they were birthed by her. And she's the last of the Tikurians, right? Or so she thinks.
0: Yeah. Can you believe that we've been at this for two hours? Okay, so <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I don't I don't want to presume on anyone's time, and I would love for this conversation to keep going. Um, but I think that we probably should wrap this, and I should thank you all for your willingness to come on and also for bringing such such interesting topics to this important chapter. Yeah,
2: thanks, everybody. Yeah. This is fun. Thank you so much, everybody. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for pulling this together, Anthony. Yes, I appreciate yes. it. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. All right. Fun. My pleasure. Okay. That's the last you'll hear from me about book content for a while. I want to thank Aaron and Jim for providing this space. I want to thank the many guests that I've had on, experts and fans alike. And I want to thank you, the listeners, who have made this project so much fun over the years. I'll be back right after House of the Dragon has completed its first season to begin my coverage of A Clash of Kings. And that is all for this week.